Good morning, church. So good to be gathered together. And big thanks to Simon Walker. He does not cease to deliver year on year out. Last year, he blessed us with a beautiful farmer's outfit. And this year, with that lovely lush tash. So thanks, brother. Thanks for, thanks for dressing to impress. Well, what a special Sunday it is for us this Sunday as we gather on International Sunday. If you're new and visiting us, we're a church of many different nationalities. You know, on that last day when we stand before the throne of God, the the choir will not just be singing in English, but in many different languages. And our multiculturalism as a church, our multiple ethnicities that call this church home, whether you're here this morning or you're listening online, as I know many of our folks are, we're each here because of Jesus, and Jesus is one that's bound us together. And so if you're new to, uh, new to Australia, maybe you're uh, new to this neighborhood, maybe you've moved from abroad, we want to welcome you to our, our church. It can be hard to find your place uh, in a new place, and uh, we would love to welcome you here. And because it is International Sunday, we want to pause and celebrate in particular what the gospel has to say about our diversity. And so we're going to open up to the book of Revelation, right at the back end of your Bibles, chapter 7. We're going to read the 17 verses of uh, this chapter, and I'm going to pray for us and ask God for help. So Revelation, chapter 7. Hopefully it will be up on the screen behind me. After this... I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and see, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, 
and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we come before your word this morning, and we ask for your help. Lord, we need your help. We desperately need your help this morning to get a glimpse of your son Jesus and who we are. Lord, I pray, would you help me in the preaching of your word? Would you empower me to bring to life your words to change us, to be more like him, to love him more, to treasure him more, to be more joined to him? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, it's easy when moving to a new country to feel like you just don't belong. You know, many years ago, I lived in Banda Aceh in North Sumatra in Indonesia. And Aceh is not like Indonesia that might be more familiar to you, like Bali, right? It's very, very different. In Aceh, they have a very strict form of Islam, and there are very few foreigners that live there. And so you'd go to the shops as a white guy and people would stare at you and say things like, Siapa Buleini? Who's this white guy? You'd interact with other foreigners and find that people as a whole in Aceh, as a foreigner, were generally treated with suspicion. The saying in Indonesia is ada udang di balik batu, which means there's a prawn literally behind the rock, which seems like a funny expression, but it means there's an ulterior motive. There's something hiding behind what you can obviously see. And so there's this suspicion of foreigners. There's this sense of why are you here? There must be an ulterior motive for you being in this place as a foreigner. And so the feeling you can have as a foreigner living in Aceh in North Sumatra is one of this kind of low-lying anxiety all the time. This feeling of deep discomfort. This feeling that you really don't belong. You know, it's not just something experienced by people who have newly moved from overseas. You can feel that in this country even if you've lived here your entire life. You know, after uh, getting married to my wife Charlotte, who was born in uh, Hong Kong and migrated over here when she was two years of age, uh, we didn't realize this until actually after we were married. 
um, Charlotte had felt this kind of disbelief that I could be interested in her. And as we were kind of unpacking it, why she kind of felt this kind of disbelief, it turns out that the reason why she felt this disbelief that I would be interested in her is because she found it nearly impossible to believe that a white guy could be interested in her as someone who's from Hong Kong originally. There was this kind of low-lying sense of inadequacy or, or inferiority as an Asian Australian. I wonder if you can relate to this in your experience. Maybe you're a Christian and you know you're part of God's family, but sometimes in your quieter moments, you wonder, but am I really fully apart? Maybe you don't know Jesus, or maybe you're even just new to the country, and you wonder, will I ever fit in here? Well, the wonderful truth of the Bible that we're going to be exploring together this morning shows us that there is no such thing as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. There is no such thing because we are all one, and it's all because of Jesus. If you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, We Are One. Um, and I've got three simple points, which are really pictures that this passage describes the way we are together as the people of God. But one hope for us on this International Sunday, straight from our passage, and that is that our passage reminds us that regardless of how we might feel, Trust in Jesus makes us fully a part of the people of God. It doesn't matter how we feel. It doesn't matter what our experience may have been. If you trust in Jesus, according to this Bible, you are fully a part of God's people. And that's where we're going to look at this morning. But our inclusion as part of God's people might not be in the way that we imagine. And as I mentioned, our passage today... Uh, we'll see our inclusion pictured through three different illustrations in our passage. And we're going to dive into the first one that we see pictured in our passage. And that is point number one, we are a holy army. You know, this book of Revelation that we're opening together, you know, as I explained, if you've been uh, walking with Jesus for a longer time, if I... I explain that we're looking at the book of Revelation, you might sort of take a gulp and think, oh dear, where are we going with it this morning? You know, as Christians, we often avoid the book of Revelation. We're a bit suspicious about it. Uh, we kind of think it's a lot about the future, and it's a bit confusing, a bit wacky, and little relevance for us today. And that couldn't be more wrong. This book was written to seven local churches by the Apostle John at the end of his life. He was an old man. And around 50 years after Jesus had ascended to heaven, the Emperor Domitian had taken the throne in Rome, and he had revived this Roman tradition of emperor worship, worshipping the emperor. And this created lots of problems and pressure for Christians living in this time, pressure to participate. And there was a temptation as a Christian to avoid persecution by caving in in a couple of different areas. If you were a Christian from a Jewish background, Jews at that time had an exemption to participating in worshipping the emperor. And so the temptation for you was to go back to the synagogue and reconvert to being a Jew that you might avoid persecution for participating in 
worshipping of the emperor. But if you're a Christian from a Gentile background, a non-Jewish background, you were tempted to join in with worshipping the emperor. You were required at times to join in with ritual worship as processions would make it through your town or at the front of your home to bow in homage to the emperor. And these Christians were constantly facing tribulation. They were constantly facing persecution for their faith. Uh, G.K. Bill, in his commentary, describes it this way. He says, Pressure for Christians to conform to ungodly political and economic systems linked with the idolatrous practices or attitudes is suggested by the commentary as the most consistent form of tribulation or suffering that they, that they experience. Pressure to bow down to, to submit to ungodly political or economic systems was the pressure that these Christians were facing and how relevant that is for us today. You see, the main message of the book of Revelation is that Jesus is victorious and he has chosen the path of suffering as the way to victory over this evil world. G.K. Bill puts it this way again. He says, Even as the cross turned out to seal Christ's victory over Satan, so the present suffering of Christians seals their victory over the powers of darkness. It's through suffering that Christians find victory. Along with Jesus is the message of the book of Revelation. And so Revelation is filled with these pictures designed to help suffering Christians, designed to help Christians that are facing temptation to abandon Jesus, to see that Jesus is the king and that they can trust him. Immediately preceding our passage in Revelation chapter 6, John has been describing God's judgment over the earth through this image of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, In Revelation, as we've been describing, it's a picture book and it paints these pictures to display truths about God. And this picture of chapter 6 is actually taken from the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah, chapter 6. And it's really about evil spiritual forces that have come to devastate the earth. And it ends with a question that our passage seeks to answer. And that is in Revelation chapter 6. Verse 17, which says, For the great day of wrath has come, and who can stand? The question our passage is seeking to answer is, who will be able to survive God's coming judgment? And it's a picture of this unified, glorious people of God. Why don't you turn with me to our passage again as we read verse 1 together one more time. John writes, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. There's this picture of these angels standing at the four corners of the earth. The picture is of them covering the earth in its entirety. And they're holding back four winds. What's that all about? Well, in Zechariah chapter 6, where chapter 6 of this passage of the book of Revelation is quoting, these four writers of judgment uh, that it's taken from are described as being four winds of the earth. And so the point is that these angels from God are restraining these evil forces from 
trying to cause havoc and to destroy the earth. And we read on in verse 2, it says the following. Then I saw another rider, another angel, ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. It's a bit confusing, isn't it, when you read these verses? What does it mean, this business about seals? When I think of seals, like personally, I think of like Sally's all clear, you know, sealing up a window or something like that. Uh, but this was a marker of ownership that would have been super clear to the original readers of this passage. You see, in the first century, a slave would often be branded with a master's seal on their forehead. And notice what it says in verse 3 of our passage. Wait until these servants, or in Greek, doulos, slaves, have been sealed, where? On their foreheads. You see, slave is someone who has no rights at all, but is owned by someone else. It's someone who's someone else's property. And God is saying through this angel, keep restraining these evil forces until I have marked all who belong to me with my seal. Until I have marked them to show that I own them. See, a seal also pointed to protection. Because a seal was a symbol that the owner would also deal with anybody who threatened their property. Just like the blood over the door lintels in the Passover, so too the seal placed on these people's foreheads points to their protection from God. Read with me verse 4 through to 8. says the following. And I heard the number of those sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah was sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. And 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. See, John sees these angels restraining these evil forces and overhears them talking about the number marked as belonging to God himself. Okay, what on earth do these numbers and, and tribes have to do with anything at all? Well, you see, in the Old Testament, God had formed a physical nation to be his representatives on earth, Israel. They were his people. And they were designed to point to his greater plan, a plan to bless all the families of the earth. And Israel had 12 tribes. And so the number 12 is to represent all of them, all of God's people. Okay, so what are these angels talking about with all these different numbers? Well, 12 tribes times 12 is meant to symbolize the complete number. All of God's people are represented here. And times 1,000 is meant to represent a large number. Its point is that absolutely all of God's people are represented here. In chapter 14 of Revelation, it describes 144,000 and it describes them as those who have been redeemed from the earth. See, this is a picture of the church. It's a picture of the body of Christ. It's a picture of us. 
But still confusing. What, what's the deal with this big list of tribes? Doesn't that seem odd to you? Well, it's a symbol. And it's meant to remind you immediately of the Old Testament book of Numbers. You see, in the Old Testament book of Numbers, the point of the repeated counting of people by tribes in the book of Numbers was to organize a military force to take the promised land. And this is a picture of God's people arranged together as a holy army. A holy army. You'll notice as you read through that list, it's meant to be symbolic because one tribe is missing, and that is the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan was notorious for idol worship, and so it's been removed and replaced by Manasseh, which is one of Joseph's sons, instead. This is a holy people. This is a purified people removed from all idolatry. Also, you'll notice that if, if you're reading through this as a list of the tribes of, Judah, or the tribes of Israel, the order is wrong. The order of the sons is meant to be Reuben, then Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. Why Judah first? Well, this is an army for which Jesus, the line of Judah, leads. And so Judah is first on the list. But what is the method by which this army fights? Well, in Revelation 14, verse 4, it says the following. It says, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. It's an army whose mission is simply to follow the Lord Jesus wherever he leads. More in the midst of great tribulation where there's pressure to compromise, to cave in to political pressure, to economic pressure, to cave into a world opposed to God, their mission is to keep on following no matter what the cost. And so we read in verse 14 of our passage the following. It says this, it says, and I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. This is an army of the faithful church. It's the army of those who have faithfully followed through tribulation and have trusted in the Lord Jesus. You see, these Christians threatened with economic loss and punishment or imprisonment or for failing to worship the emperor who attempted a compromise to return to the synagogue or to just offer a little pagan worship on the side. This was a massive comfort. To know that God had placed his seal upon them as his own. To know that he was restraining evil that would seek to harm them. And that he called them into his holy army whose mission was simply to follow the lamb that was slain. Here's a question I want us to think about this morning as a church. Can you see that you are part of God's holy army? You know, it's so easy in our Western individualistic culture to completely forget that we're part of anything beyond ourselves. You know, we come to church and we're so tempted just to evaluate whether we enjoyed the morning or not. That was a good morning, or that wasn't so good, it was a little bit boring. The preacher went on a bit. To evaluate the ministries, whether we do things slightly different or not. And or to look around and evaluate 
whether people are like us or not, whether they have the same age or the same interests, whether they're of the same ethnicity or season of life. And if they're not, to begin to wonder, maybe I'm in the wrong community. Maybe this is not the right place for me. But when you think about it, it's kind of equivalent to a soldier who says to his commanding officer, I'm just not sure this soldier business is really working for me. I mean, firstly, the assignments, I'm not finding them very fulfilling. Secondly, it's not really my style. Thirdly, the other guys seem to be in a different season than me. I'm thinking maybe they're a little bit older. Maybe they're kind of kids guys, and I'm, a, I'm not a kids guy. And so I'm wondering, maybe a different role, or maybe actually a different army. I'm thinking maybe I'm a Navy guy. Maybe I should be in the Navy. I mean, it's a crazy thought, isn't it? That soldier has completely missed the point. The army is not about them. The army exists to do the will of the commanding officer. Are you questioning this morning, friends, whether you really fit here in this community? Or can you see that you are a part of God's holy army? To be part of God's holy army means we have a common purpose that is not about us. It means we are all following our commander-in-chief. We are those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's point number one. We are a holy army. Not just that, point number two, we also see in this passage that we are a kingdom of priests. You know, if you're a Christian and maybe you're doing a bit of dating and you're interested in Christian dating... Dating as a Christian, it's about getting to know someone, right? About figuring out, should we get married? Should we not get married? And, you know, you get to know that person. You get to know their hobbies and passions. You get to know their quirks and how they manage conflicts and, and their family, their ambitions in life. And importantly, of course, you get to know their relationship with Christ. But if someone said to you on a date, so tell me a little bit about yourself, what would you say? Well, here's one thing I can guarantee you would never say. And that is, well, for starters, I'm a priest. I mean, that's not the way we talk. That's not the way we think. And yet the truth is, 1,500 years before this passage was written, God said the following thing to Moses. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. He says, now therefore... If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, priests are mediators. They represent people to God, and they represent God to people. And God is saying, I'm going to make a whole nation of people who are my representatives. Not a nation with priests, God's saying. I'm going to make a nation who are priests. A priestly nation. And our passage wants you to see that this is exactly what God has achieved in his church. It's not just an army, but it's also a kingdom of priests. Read with me verse 9 again. 
He says, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. This is a vision of this multitude of people that's too big to count. It's impossible to count. You know, the largest concert ever held uh, on records was by Rod Stewart in 1994 at Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro, and they estimate there were 3.5 million people in attendance. But this gathering makes Rod Stewart's concert in Rio look like a tribute band playing in a pub gig. This is the largest gathering that will ever be. And this is an incredibly diverse group of people. Notice what it says. From every, not some, every nation. That word is ethnos. It means people united by kinship and culture and common traditions. It means every culture is represented here. All tribes, that's a word that talks about bloodline. Every people joined by common ancestry will be here. All peoples, that's talking about culture and place together. People groups, people who not only share the same culture, but identify with the same land as well. All languages will be represented here. Mandarin and Arabic and German, Korean, Amharic, Tamil. Every language is represented. Every single culture and place is represented by this group. There is no bias or preference towards any one group, but all are represented here. You know, some faiths teach you that, that your standing before God is based on your family that you're born into. Not so with the God of the Bible. God made all people in his image. All are equally precious. And so all are represented in his people. But notice where this innumerable crowd is gathered. It's before the throne of God and the Lamb. That is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They stand in the very presence of God, the place only befitting of a priest in the temple. And they are dressed in white, symbolic of their purity. And they hold palm branches. Seems a little odd to us, but in the Old Testament, it was used of the festival of the, of the booths, which really celebrated God's faithfulness during the wilderness years. And so these followers are celebrating God's provision during the wilderness years of the church where they've walked through great tribulation in the time before Christ returns. That is our time right now. And this huge gathering is also dressed like priests. Read with me verse 14 again of our passage. It says, And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You read that and you're like, okay, weird. I mean, normally you wash robes to get the blood off, right? Not a blood wash. I mean, what does this actually even mean? This is the clothing of priests. See, in the Old Testament, priests would sprinkle blood on their clothing to purify it. The meaning is that someone had to die to pay for my wrongs and to make me clean. 
more the seal that all of God's own reveal uh, on their foreheads is also the mark of a priest. You know, in the Old Testament, the priest would wear a plaque on their forehead that was written the name of God, holy to the Lord. And the atmosphere here is one of absolute celebration. Notice what they say, verse 10. And crying out with a loud voice, they say, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped the God saying, Amen and blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Salvation, they cry, belongs to our God. That's deliverance from death. Belongs to our God and the Lamb. All these angels and spiritual beings around the throne, they fall on their face and they worship and they worship. Blessing and glory, thanksgiving, honor, all of it belongs to you, God, forever and ever. And they worship and they worship and they worship. All the praise belongs to you, God, and your son, Jesus Christ. Read with me verse 15. Therefore, it says... They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. These people who have endured so many trials in their life, who have followed the Lamb, who have resisted the calls to serve money and popularity and security and peace, and now serve in the presence of the King of Glory as priests. But it's not a dull existence. It's deeply intimate as well. They serve and he shelters them. You know, I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who feels that they don't belong here because of their ethnicity. You look around and there's a little voice that says... They don't understand you. And you don't quite fit here. Don't believe that lie for a moment. God has made you in the image of his son and purposed you to be one of the many distinct voices on that final day. He has a unique place for you in his kingdom of priests. Now, I wonder if there's some here today that, if you're honest with yourself, you feel slightly inferior to others here. Maybe because of your ethnicity, but maybe because of your past, maybe because of your failures, maybe because of your age, maybe because of your season, maybe because of your quirks. You are a priest to God Most High. Your future is to wait upon Him in His presence for all of eternity. And in this life right now, your calling is to mediate between God and others, to display Christ with your life, and to bring others before the throne. What could possibly be 
more noble a task than that. What greater honor could possibly be bestowed on a person than that? You see, we're not just a holy army, we're also a kingdom of priests. But thirdly and finally, not just a holy army, not just a kingdom of priests, but also, point number three, a treasured possession. You know, it may be possible for some people to still remain unconvinced of the reality that you have a wonderful part to play in the kingdom of God. And I believe God's out to convince you. You see, before promising that there'd be a kingdom of priests in our passage earlier, if you remember as we read it, God said to Moses, Therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. See, God had a plan for his people, not a, a people that would, he would tolerate or even be just neutral towards, but that he would deeply love, that he would treasure. I wonder if you have a treasured possession, something that you really love. You know, for those of you that know my son Elijah, he's 18 months old, and his treasured possession is Toto. A toto is Cantonese for bunny, and so Toto is understandably a bunny. And Elijah, he loves his bunny so much. Soon as he feels sad, he calls for his bunny. Toto, Toto. Or sometimes he says like gong, 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 but we know what he means. He wants Toto. And he grabs that bunny and he shoves it in his mouth and he bites on it and cuddles it. He sleeps with his bunny. He walks the shops with us with his bunny. He wants his bunny in the bath. He doesn't understand why that's not okay. He wants his bunny to be put in the toilet. He wants his bunny to be everywhere where he is because he loves that bunny so much. Toto is Elijah's most treasured possession. A little bit too much treasured, actually. We had to buy three so we could wash the thing, but anyway. (laughs) But take aside the gross aspects of Toto and just focus in on how much Elijah loves him. That's a picture of God's love for his people. And if you're trusting in Jesus, that's a picture of God's love for you. Read with me verse 17, uh, 15 through to 17, what it says. It says, Therefore, They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's this beautiful picture, isn't it? One of such intimate care. As they serve and they worship in his presence, he shelters them. He gives them food and drink and he meets all their needs. He protects them from the heat of the day. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is in their midst, leading them and guiding them. See, God the Father comforts them. He wipes away even the tears from their eyes. It's such an example of the intimate and personal aspects of his care. But there's an even greater display of his love for his own people right here in this passage. Read with me again the end of verse 14. 
the elder says, These are those coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. How? In the blood of the Lamb. You know, this kingdom of priests, this treasured possession, haven't been sprinkled with just any blood to be cleansed. But the blood of the Lamb of God, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, so much of the Old Testament is trying to answer this great problem. How can God forgive guilty people? If they've done great wrong and they're simply forgiven, it's a massive injustice. And yet God gave his people in the Old Testament a sacrificial system to point to the reality that wrongdoing has a real cost. Someone ought to die for this. And so an animal as a symbol of what should have happened instead of the person who committed the crime. But it never dealt with the problem. Animals can't really die on behalf of people. And yet I wish I could adequately explain to you guys this morning the beauty of what God had ordained. That God would send his only son to be a sacrifice for us. That he would send the lamb of God himself, representing the Passover lamb, whose seal of blood on the door would protect the people of God from his wrath over them. The Lord Jesus Christ, who lived an obedient life in our place, who went to the cross on our behalf, who endured in his body in full on that tree, God's wrath who is received simply by repentance and faith through following him and trusting in him. And that's what this multitude have done. They've trusted and followed Jesus through every opposition and difficulty and made it to the end. In Revelation chapter 5, it says of this multitude, it says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll And open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You know, I wonder, I really wonder if there are some here or listening online that feel as though they don't quite fit here in this community, maybe because of your age, maybe because of your stage, maybe because of your ethnicity, maybe because of your history. Friends, what binds us together is not common interest. It's not season of life. It's not age. It's not stage. And it's not ethnicity. What binds us together is that we've been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are part of his holy army and we therefore follow him wherever he leads, whatever the cost. We're part of his kingdom of priests that serve him and share him with others. We're his treasured possession that he loves so deeply. But I wonder if there are some here who have been maybe listening online to all this talk of what Jesus has done, but this morning you feel strangely drawn to him. And you find yourself wondering, how can I be part of this people? Well, in closing, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, puts it really simply. He says, because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Simply confess Jesus is the master of your life. 
Repent of denying him. Repent of living like he's not your master. Put your trust in what he did on the cross for you. And you will be part of the glorious people of God. Well, in moving to a new country, it's easy to feel like you don't quite fit in. And that was my experience in moving to Indonesia. And the same way in the church, it's easy to feel like you're not fully apart for any number of reasons. Maybe your age, your stage, your season, your ethnicity, your history, so many reasons. Yet the beautiful truth of our passage is that because of Jesus, we're included in God's people. And so regardless of how we feel, we're one. We're a holy army. We're a kingdom of priests. We're a treasured possession. And so if that's true, church, when tempted to feel we don't belong, let's not sit back and wait for others to come to us. But let's follow the lamb wherever he goes and move towards others in love. This International Sunday Church, will we not forget that regardless of how we might feel, trust in Jesus makes us fully a part of God's people. You join me in praying as we close. Lord God, how can we ever find words to express the depth of our gratitude and thanks for all you've done for us? To think that on that last day, our clothing will be white because it has been sprinkled, not with the blood of an animal or anyone's blood, but because it's been sprinkled with your blood. Lord Jesus, how can we ever return appropriate thanks for the truth that you gave up your life for us, such as your love? Well, God, as a people prone to distraction by so many different things, prone to eyes that fall upon ourselves and think of our own inadequacies and how we're feeling, prone to question whether we have a home or a place in the midst of your people. Lord, cast our eyes afresh to see us who we really are, part of your holy army, on mission, following the Lamb part of a kingdom of priests, washed clean, serving in your temple, sharing with others about what you're like. And last but not least, a treasured possession. Lord God, you're worthy of all our praise. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.